Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Dewing Grain are independent and local grain traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, they can offer you the best strategies to achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Each week on our podcast, we begin with the Dewing Grain Market Report, giving you up-to-date information and analysis, followed by the Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues with a guest or two, whilst occasionally sampling a beer, Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing with this week's Market Report. Market Report for week commencing 12th of June 2023. What a funny old week we've just had. I mean, I'm going to talk firstly about old crop wheat. I mean, it's a fascinating market. You've got to say that. I think there's too much of it. If we look just at the UK, it's clearly in surplus. And the people who are long of it are farmers. The merchanting trade is square, possibly a bit short with a view to, you know, taking a profit perhaps. But largely, I think they're keeping themselves pretty tidy. And it's clear that lots of farmers are turning up with tonnage to sell because now the pressure is on to get the shed empty ready for harvest time. So the market consists of basically merchants phoning up the brokers saying, what bids have you got? And at different times of the week, there's no bids. I mean, there's been someone buying it into Ipswich, which is great. You know, they're putting a price out there. But two or three times, they're the only people bidding, which is, I think, putting it into store. I can't see how that works. I guess they're taking it in against new crop. I mean, it's a guaranteed quality, which is a good idea, just in case the crop turns into a bucket full of mush when it rains in the middle of harvest or something. So you're guaranteeing the spec. But I think the difference between harvest price and November futures will be greater than buying it at current levels that's my view but hey who cares it's given at least the market somewhere to put some wheat and then you get you know the world reacting to various things we've had a dam blown up in ukraine lots of acres have disappeared underwater you know affecting perhaps four million tons of production these are bullish things These are long-term bullish things it's a problem the usda figures coming out later today probably be pretty neutral should state that stocks are a bit bigger than expected which may be a little bit bearish but the market's basically rallied on the basis of some very dry weather in the states leading up to this week but of course it's rained this week and some of the risk is off because the corn crops actually got moisture farmer sellers you've got weather in the world which is being read either way You've got El Nino, which has been confirmed as definitely happening. Now, whether that impacts immediately in the Northern Hemisphere, which is the important bit at the moment. All right, you've got some floods in China. There's going to be a very hot and dry Australia and Asia at some point during this El Nino cycle. It should mean wet US. It should mean a big corn crop. It will have influences. I think the most bullish aspect of that particular prediction is actually Harvest 24. I mean, does that make Harvest 24 a buy? in its own right you know there's going to be some troubles that come with very hot weather the last del nino year 2016 was the hottest year ever potentially 23 24 could be even hotter or probably will be even hotter than that bringing bigger cyclones bigger problems with droughts bigger problems with no water therefore as a spec if you want to close your eyes and buy something the cost of production of 2024 is pretty close to the line it's trading on the futures around about 200 pounds a ton so that's 185x farm can you make a profit 185x farm for 2024 harvest? Probably just about if it's a good harvest. That is not really a great reason to go and carry on doing it, is it? So yeah, that one is a completely separate thought, you know, which you can't do that because you've got old crop to trade, you've got 2023 crop to trade, you're farming, you've got commitment to it. But it's, you know, as a set aside thought, well, maybe we should set some land aside. The other thing that's really prominent and become very clear is it's a hideous, hideous black grass year. 
And I had one of my colleagues in the trade, I won't name him, but Christ, he was miserable about the blooming black grass. Oh, the world's going to end. Everyone's going to go spring barley next year. There's nothing to trade. Cambridge is ruined. And it's like, okay, cheery one. But he's got a very good point. There is a terrible black grass problem. It's clearly been ideal conditions for that particular plant. And here we sit with a dilemma for farmers. We've got farmers who are cutting sections out of their crops and putting them into a D plant before the seeds have become viable on the black grass because they've got to do something about controlling it. And they are going to spray Roundup as much as they possibly can next year as they plant their spring crops instead. And they will only be able to spray Roundup for as many years as Roundup isn't banned. That's the next thing to be banned by our forward-thinking government. Quite rightly, probably, I've got no idea, you know, whether the chemistry is giving us all cancer or not. But the dynamic is, without that product, we're going to go back to thistles everywhere. And, you know, anyway, so black grass, El Nino, dams being blown up. Yeah, there's a whole load of directions the market could go in and nobody knows the answer to it. I've had farmers come on this week and say to me, oh, this is the bottom, it's going to go up. Okay. I've got other farmers who are saying, well, you know, I'm going to have a really big crop. What should I do? Should I sell it? I've got people moaning about the all-seed rape price. Obviously, that's our fault. Yes, we screwed up on last year's all-seed rape selling at the end. Quite openly on the podcast, we said, we'll close our eyes and hope it goes to 500. And it went to 300 instead. Absolutely wrong on it and very publicly wrong. But, you know, let's ignore the £300 a tonne for the malting barley they got or the £290 a tonne they got for their wheat. It's just like, it's such volatility. If your mentality is not strong enough to cope with the misery of all this, did you make a profit? Was it on a whole a good year? Yes, it was, especially for some of our customers. You know, these are strange times. And if you're going to be grumpy with people about one specific crop, then fine. Anyway, enough of that one. So, old crop fee wheat is valued around about £165 per tonne. And I do not see old crop wheat going up in value. I think there is too much of it. Obviously, if new crop rallies like crazy because someone does something else done with a bomb and or, I don't know what, but I do not see old crop UK feed wheat having any real friends. There's buyers up north and in East Anglia there is no buyers, as I mentioned earlier. Now, if someone is probably selling their grain, it probably pays a bit more money to sell it to someone who's going to cart it up to Teesside or maybe to Selby. I mean, there's an intake point at Selby where their intake machine can tell what colour socks the combine driver was wearing, apparently. So there's 148,000 reasons why you could get rejected. Is your rep telling you this is the price and does he know that it's going to be carted by his firm to Selby? If so, you need to be aware of what the rejection costs are. We've had this conversation in the previous four years where if you're comparing a price, where is the grain going to go to is the question. If it's going locally and you have any query over the quality of your crop or whether you've got bugs in there and there are plenty of bugs around, then you can say, I don't want it to go a long, long way. And you might be better selling it for two or three pound discount to make sure you don't take that risk. It is your risk. Who is to blame if you are rejected somewhere exotic? You know, do you know who it is? Yes, it's the farmer. Okay. It's not the merchant who's gone, I'll pay two quid more than other people and I'll cart it a million miles and they get rejected and oh, by the way, here's a £40 rejection charge. That is the farmer's fault, okay? So farmer, if you're now aware of that, wake up and ask your person, where is it going to go to? And get that clarity off him. If the rep doesn't know, ask him to go and find out or get some sort of guarantee that it will go locally. It could save you a fortune. 
If you're too lazy to do that and you just trust your guy to do something sensible with it, in the end, it's not that smiley, nice little man who pats your dog and remembers your wife's birthday. It is some horrid little trader in a far-off county who doesn't care for you at all, all right? You might see his picture on the side of a lorry or he might appear on a TV thing telling you what the market's going to do, but largely, he doesn't give a shit about you. Moving on, I'll go on to new crop because there's nothing else to talk about on old crop. Right, so new crop feed wheat for November is 176. If you're looking at harvest prices into one of our stores immediately the day that you cut it, you'll get 171 for it. I'm basing this on November futures being 191. Now, this brings me on to another one of my little rants. So if you are comparing as available harvest values with our price into our store, please remember that some people's as available gives them at least 21 days to move it. So if you think you're going to cut it and someone's paying £6 more, that doesn't actually mean it's going to be gone by the time your spring barley comes in or your wheat. And everyone's forgotten about those moments when you can't move stuff or wet harvest when you have to get on and really get on and cut something and you're held up because something hasn't moved. So if you're comparing like with like, do not waste your breath by telling us how rubbish we are not bidding as much as X company because their movement doesn't in any way represent what we provide. So anyone who takes a store on, and there aren't many people who bother to do that, the biggest company does and one or two others have the odd store, is some kind of nutter at the moment because it costs a very large amount of money to pay storage. Every month that you have paid for something costs you at least a pound per tonne in finance. So it's a very expensive game to play. Now that is a service and we have to seriously consider, is it worth providing that service if everyone thinks that we're ripping them off or whatever? But the reality of storage costs and the reality of finance charges says that it's a very, very expensive game to play. So just be aware that is something we're looking very seriously at saying well maybe we should join in with just having a desk like everybody else and we'll let you sort your own movement out that would be quite a laugh wouldn't it nah no, nah, we'll never we'll stick with what we do because that's what we're good at but it's painful when you hear someone comparing your price and it isn't like for like is my point anyway so i've told you the wheat prices feed barley if you are prepared to have an as available movement 14 to 21 days basis you'll probably get something like 150x, maybe 45 to 50x. If you want it to go into a store immediately at harvest time in the second week of July, I'll probably pay you 145 delivered. You know, so I'm not at the moment massively inspired by that. I do believe that feed barley will have lots of interest for export this year as the season goes on, because Spain are clearly going to buy lots of tons and we're one of the people with a surplus of it. So I think that's a very important point. Barley, I don't see much or any downside to it. Which moves on to the whole consensus. I am recently, I am wrong on this new crop wheat market. I thought it had not visited its lows. I'm still not convinced the market is ready to ramp up. There's nothing really concrete to make the market steam through the roof yet. You can't definitely guarantee that that was the bottom and it's going to go up only from here onwards. Because we don't know the size of the crop yet. Is it a big crop? Hot and dry from now on, the next two weeks. Very hot weather over the weekend for East Anglia. At last, the cloud is gone, but there's been no rain. There's some rain in the west. Is that going to give them a bigger crop? I don't know. Black grass, we've mentioned that. It's going to eat into the yield. What else is going to hit it? So is the crop shrinking as we speak? Probably, because it was at optimum previous to that. But it's still a very big harvest crop. And where is it going to go? And are we competitive? No, we're not. We're reacting to different prices around the world. The states going up 40 cents on their corn. The French kind of following it. 
There is some hot and dry weather in Europe. It's not all roses over there. Was it the bottom? I have not got a clue, and neither has anybody else. My gut instinct says I'm still bearish in the short term. I could be very wrong on it, but I do not see a rally of note. It's the one I'm looking for. The price of zooming up has got to be a real rally, a real reason for going. Would I buy everything back in and go long for the sake of, you know, a week's worth of trading? No, I don't see the point. I'm not convinced. The charts, if you look at them, are still all within a bearish channel. They are still heading downwards. So until it breaks that, until there is something I can build a house on that's firm enough for me to say, that's the market, definitely got a reason for going up, then I'll buy it at that moment. But at this moment, that doesn't exist. And announcing an El Nino somewhere down the line is not a bullish reason until the impact of the weather is occurring. So just, you know, yes, pluck bullish stories out of the air, if you like. But until it actually impacts in your face, it doesn't make any difference. Someone telling me it should be going up and it's going down. USDA today, it could drop it two or three quid, four or five quid. It could give it a rally, four or five quid. But I bet you on Tuesday morning next week, it will be back to where we are now. So in other words, it's not going anywhere yet because there's no reason for it to go anywhere yet. Right, I'm nearly out of breath after all this ranting. What else do you want to know? i giving you barley prices. Rape is 330 for harvest. It's a few quid better than it was. It's below cost of production, you tell me. My instinct is... How much lower can that one go? I think we're going to take stuff into store this year and give people store charges and then fix the price later. Because I think there's got to be a better day than this. But we have history of getting rape wrong in the last 12 months. So let's not dwell on that. Uh, Do the opposite of what I say. Okay, I think that's all about the market. Clearly, you can see that we're kind of frustrated with the miseries of it all and trying to empty our stores and all that stuff. So there's two things to say. Firstly, the podcast this week has got Chris Hill from the Eastern Daily Press. He's a local agricultural reporter. It's a really good conversation with him. He avoided me as many times as he possibly could, but like a Mountie, I always get my man. He sat here and he thought he was going to be terrible. And I've listened to the edit of it, and it's a great podcast. And he does a very difficult and very good job for our industry. I've got to remind the walkers, anyone who might want to go for a nice little walk with me, on the 26th of June at 2pm in the afternoon. It's a Monday, and yes, it's not the most convenient time for people travelling a long distance, I get that. But the, what three words are feel, sunbeam, swarm, which is the car park in the middle of Munsley, for those who want to know where it is. And it's a good long six, seven mile walk, and there is a pub in Munsley afterwards, so that seems like a good enough reason. Yeah, so that's it. I think let's have a more clear week's trading next week. Maybe I'll have a very firm opinion about what it's going to do. But right now, confused from Ailsham, hasn't got a clue. Don't ask me. Have a great week's trading and I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by East Coast Design Studio in Norwich. We are a creative agency specializing in graphic design, websites, digital marketing, and SEO services tailored towards local and small businesses, a design agency you can trust. Get in touch to inquire with our friendly team today on 01603 728 978 or head over to our socials at East Coast Design Studio on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Right, this week, I have got with me the local journalist for the Eastern Daily Press, a gentleman called Chris Hill. Hello, Chris. 
Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Good. Now, he's just interviewed me and I'm now interviewing him. And I have asked him only on about seven other occasions to finally get him to do this. So this is a result. Right? Yeah, sorry that's taken so long. We got there eventually. Yeah. <laughs> right, so first things first, you are a fellow winner of the Sir Timothy Coleman Prize, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, very proud of it as well. Me too. I was shocked and proud when I won it. Yeah, shocked is a good word. I remember getting the email from the Royal Norfolk Agricultural Association. And it's a prize that we always feature the winner of. We always go and meet them and interview them and do a little piece on. So I assumed that they were sending me a notification of who'd won it so I could follow yeah. it up afterwards. And I had to reread it several times and get my other half to confirm that I've read it correctly. <laughs> because it's such, I mean, yourself included, Andrew, it's a very rarefied company, the people who win that award. So yeah, it was a huge privilege, great honour to win that. Yeah. Proper Norfolk Farming Award, that, isn't it? Well, another thing that made it really special for me is that I work in an industry where there are tons of awards. There's media awards and journalism awards and newspaper awards all over the place. And not to devalue the people who win those, there's a lot of great work that deserves recognition. But to have earned recognition from the community that I'm working within and the industry that I'm covering rather than the industry that I'm working in, just made it yeah. much more humbling almost. Yeah, it's like, and it, it's an endorsement that what you've been trying to do over a period of several years is landing properly and you're having the effect that you wanted to have. Yeah, I mean, to me, it was you don't realise people are watching, do you? I mean, you, you, everyone's watching you because you're there every week, aren't you? It's almost like, you know, you're the carpet well trod. Everyone knows what you're thinking because they are impressed every week. But for me, it was like... Oh, who on earth nominated me? Because that's all secret as well, isn't it? So for you, yeah, that must have been very funny reading your own name on it. And how do I interview myself? Yeah, in fact, I had to write my own story. (laughs) And I think if you look at it online, it's got a colleague of mine put his byline on it. But it was far too arrogant to write a piece about your own award (laughs) accolade. So I had someone else write it for me, but I kind of go through it. Call myself a genius. I've been saying we need a Grain Trader of the Year award and everyone to get bored because I win it every year. That's the sort of thing I'd be like. (laughs) Listeners will know how arrogant. And I have about such things. So tell me, when did you start? When did you join the EDP? I've been with the EDP since 2007, I think. It was a relatively late career change for me. I was about 30 or so when I joined. What were you doing before then? A series of not incredibly exciting or worthwhile jobs. It was marketing and something I was doing before I... And journalism was always something you kind of secretly wanted to do? When I was at school, English and English literature was the thing I was good at. And I always thought that it would be nice to do a career that involved words and some kind of creative expression. But just the way life goes sometimes, I didn't have the opportunity to go to university. I went straight into work after doing my sixth form, getting my A-levels and just went off on a different path from there. And it wasn't until I was coming up to my 30th birthday that someone drew attention to something that the EDP doesn't do anymore, actually. They used to have like an open aptitude test that you could come and sit and they would choose trainees from it. So it's like an apprenticeship. And I remember there was 200 or so people came and sat this aptitude exam, which is a combination of local knowledge and ability to turn source material into a written piece of prose. And they picked about a dozen people to interview for two jobs. And I was fortunate enough to get (laughs) one of those two jobs as a result of that. And again, at the time, I remember sitting chatting to some of the people who were about to go into the interviews and they were all people with master's degrees in, you know, literature yeah. and creative writing or politics or business. And you're or doing this was. sort of like, oh, they're never going to pick me face. Aren't yeah. You? And I'm thinking, what, <laughs> how do I compete with this? Yeah. It's a similar imposter syndrome, imposter syndrome yeah. to how I felt with the Timothy Coleman prize, to be yeah, honest, yeah, yeah. in the company of people who really know what they're doing. 
And as it turns out, what they were looking for was someone with a bit of life experience. He knew the area, knew the county, and possibly, and I think this is something that relates to my current job as well, he's prepared to ask stupid questions, the sort of stupid questions that... uh, that I don't think you've ever asked me a stupid question. You you seem to know enough about our agricultural world. Ah, well, that took a while. So I was with the EDP for, I don't know, eight years or so before the agricultural job came up. And it was previously held by someone a lot of people listening to this remember, Michael Pollitt. Absolutely, uh, he's a great friend of ours, yeah. Yeah, really good guy, and he'd done that job for 30-plus years, so mm. he was really well entrenched in that Well, industry. his knowledge was exceptional. It was what, you know, you wanted a point of reference, but at Michael, he'll know. Yeah, and it was mm. immediate. It was all yeah. kind of all banked up. So he was someone that I worked with for several years. I was the rural affairs correspondent for mm. a couple of years, so working alongside Michael doing the agricultural brief. But when Michael moved on, I saw an opportunity to, I don't know, learn something new, to work within a different community, a different landscape. And it wasn't something I had any previous experience of. I had no former knowledge of agriculture or farming. And it's not my family background. It's not something I had any experience in in that sense. So again, I had that same feeling of, is this the right, is this yeah. the right move to be making? But the point I made to try and gain that position, and one that I still believe in, is that the farming industry in Norfolk, or anywhere for that matter, but in Norfolk that we cover, isn't really served by an expert you know, farming journalist, which is what they yeah. wanted to recruit talking to farmers about farming what you really need is someone who can appreciate these issues from a consumer point of view ask the stupid questions again you know so particularly in an industry that has so much depth and complexity and its own jargon and language and acronyms all these obstacles you have to get through as a journalist there was a way to put that across in a way that real people understood so you have to appreciate it as a consumer because your editor is going to be going right we need more readers and there's only so many farmers and they'll be, want to be as technical as anything. So they'll be wanting a really, really in-depth conversation about share pieces for a plough or something. And you've got someone else saying, look, if we have a pretty picture of a lamb, it'll sell more papers. So how do you balance that? Because you can't just have pretty pictures of lambs all the time. You've got to have some content there which actually satisfies the agricultural sector. That's yeah. a really tough battle. What you've neatly illustrated there is something that I recognise very quickly is that we have two distinct audiences that we have to reach. The one that keeps me in a job is the farming industry. So we have advertisers who want to reach people who are selling seeds or agronomy services or who want to reach farm managers, you know, farming decision makers. And they want to have content to put their adverts beside that will be read by those you know, farm managers, farm decision makers. So we have to provide stories that are of interest to the industry. But as I said, right at the outset, there's no benefit to the industry for just keeping that closed loop, I don't think. No. Similarly, we're a newspaper. We're not a specialist publication. We have kind of specialist parts of the, of the mm. publication. So I need anyone who picks up the EDP on a Saturday when our supplements are in generally to be able to understand and read everything they read. So. It can't just be about farmers for farmers. It has to be about farming for the whole of everyone else to understand. So Incredibly difficult balance. It's an impossible balance. And you can't really achieve it in any one story, to be honest. So it's unfortunate that we still... The EDP has always had a commitment to farming coverage. So we get a run of pages. We get specialist supplements every now and again. So it will be reflected in many stories across. So there'll be one story that might be a cute lamb picture (laughs) next to... A story about, you know, the latest political developments or, you know, changes in payment policy regimes, whatever it happens to be, environmental policy. But you can't balance it out over the whole. But no, you can't simultaneously 
pare back a story to be understood by the consumer hey, at the same time as having the level of clarity and detail that you would need to reach it. Can you sometimes, like, you can see the message that needs to be put across and the official language is X and a farmer's not articulating it properly. I mean, you can't, you know, say something controversial, not controversial, you know, where you really cut to the one-liner. Just before this, we did an interview when we were discussing my podcast on it. And that conversation meandered beautifully around most of these subjects already. But it strikes me that, and I gave an example of what, you know, me as an individual, I can say things that are an opinion. Whereas you have to put the facts, you know, you have to have the facts. So your opinion must sometimes be, you know, you're thinking, mm, I really don't want this message to come across like this. How do you cope with that? I've always been OK with that. It's professional discipline to say that, you know, you're a journalist. People expect you to be neutral, straight down the middle. You do have opinions on things, mm. quite strong opinions a lot of the time. But if it's in a news piece, I would hate for anyone to have recognised an opinion of mine within it. What it needs to have is opinions from people within yeah. that argument on both sides of it. That makes and sense. then you extremely clever because I can't do that you know you have someone who is coming up with something that you don't agree with and you have to make your point on my podcast I'm allowed to do that and if I really get strong I'm edit them you see <laughs> we still have the opportunity to I mean we have opinion columns and leader columns and I'm quite often involved in writing the leader opinion column for the EDP as well so there are opportunities when there's a point to be made when there's a position to be taken i.e. one that the EDP would take, not just me as an individual, then we've got ways of putting that across. And I'd like to think we'd continue to do that from a campaigning point of view. But in most stories where there's a difference of opinion and there are two sides to it, then we have to reflect both of those equally and balance them out. That's part of the discipline of doing it. Okay, so let's just have another question. So someone comes in on a regular basis, you know, guys like us, we're not particularly good at tapping you up going, well, hey, Chris puts in the paper. Because it's like, you think, well, you have to be good enough to get reported on. That's arrogant and all the rest of it. So you don't appear much in the paper. When you do come in there, there's, you know, it's great because it's an opportunity to, to give an opinion and people go, oh, he's still breathing. But how do you cope with those professional PR types who keep shoving stories into you week after week? I assume you have to kind of politely ignore them or something. Uh, either politely ignore them or, I mean, sometimes there's stories in them, but it's not the story that you're being presented with. So you will quite often see something that will catch your attention in a press release or a, a, mm. something that someone sent you that isn't the thing that they wanted you to discuss at all. But it's just something you think, well, actually, if we took this in a slightly different direction, followed a different avenue, then it could be something interesting. But yeah, there's so much, so many organisations and everyone's got a communications department and a PR specialist. And, uh, Everyone. Uh, <laughs> your, your own PR department. Well, no, we have, that's, the, that's, the, that's the point. PR departments, HR departments, all of these departments where these people are experts in these fields are of a similar ilk who are not very good at actually having an opinion themselves. They're very good at kind of like pumping out something that's like vanilla or beige as opposed to something concrete and punchy. That, that's kind of, you know. Yeah, but their job is to find something about their company their client that is interesting enough to warrant news coverage it's not my job to report everything that (laughs) that people send through the email so i won't automatically bin it and ignore it you know genuinely i read every email that's sent to me some get longer (laughs) before they're disposed of than others but if there's something interesting in it we'll find it if there's not we'll very quickly recognize that and it goes in the bin i think you should listen to the doing grain podcast every week chris you're not at the moment i can tell 
I think you should, because within there, lots of times there's stories. We're going to be a great source. You can follow us up three or four weeks later and we'll see whether we're working. Well, sources is what it's all about. I've listened to a few. I have listened to a few, but I'm going to make it part of my... Every week. I'm going to make it part of my weekly schedule, because without sources, the whole thing fails. Well, it's just right. Some of the banter ones are a bit dodgy, but, you know, some of the guests and some of the subject matters, you can hear how the conversation we're having goes. It moves around. Who knows what we're going to talk about next, but some of the stuff people come out with are like, wow, how did they end up doing that and and those are always my favorite stories when you start a conversation and there's always a reason for ringing someone up you know there's a story in the back of your mind or something's happened that you're trying to get a response to but the best stories are always the ones where something leaps out of it that you hadn't expected at the start of it and it ends up being something completely different but it's hard to manufacture that you know it's like sometimes you do just have to meander a little bit I think with all the pressures of well the industry and of time at the moment the opportunity to have those conversations lessens sometimes in those conversations when it disappears down a little rabbit hole that you think is going to go nowhere somebody comes up with something that you absolutely have no idea that they were doing is my point and they just go and we haven't got the time we go what you do what and that's the Stuff that we could really expand upon but you sort of think Christ I've been talking for long enough now we're going to cut it down but I'm impressed we need to talk about that another day some of those little gems come out mm. because the conversations aren't pre-discussed it is yeah. like this I'm conscious of the time you know so I've got a good question for you and bearing in mind you've got your balanced journalist head on so we're going to go what in your opinion is the future of agriculture for Norfolk are we in a great place or are we in a bit of trouble Oh, that's a huge question, isn't it? I thought for a second you were going to ask about the future of newspapers and journalism, which would be something I'm more qualified to talk about. I mean, I think the people that we have in this industry are automatically innovative and adaptable. And I'm convinced that whatever challenges there are, and there are many considerable challenges, I'm sure that the people that we have in that industry would be able to overcome them. What form that looks like, I don't know, is it going to be larger businesses smaller farms being kind of run out of the market that's the way everybody thinks isn't it i mean environmental policy is is such a huge driver of of change at the moment as well it's like are people going to be able to grow food effectively while maintaining their environmental responsibilities in the eyes no they're not we've got to go through a cycle of that not having enough food actually in order for someone to go oh you do actually have to plant grain, do you? Oh. Yeah. I mean, there's a pessimistic view of the future where, you know, the dominance of climate and environmental policy, plus some of the trade deals that have been and are <laughs> being negotiated, could leave us in a situation where we have a beautiful green funded countryside in Norfolk and we're importing all of our food from yeah. other parts of the world that have mm-hmm. far less controls on how it's produced. I'm more of an optimist. I don't think we're going to get to that point. And, and we are already outsourcing our bee killing to other countries due to Liz Trust and others. But you don't need to comment on that. But we are. <laughs> we you. outsource our bee killing. We outsource a number of practices. So we're not on a level playing field. And the government's completely and utterly capable of fibbing to your face about it. So we are in trouble and we will have a lovely green country and we will end up importing more food. However... There is, you know, geopolitical issues in this world now where it wouldn't take very much to do what history dictates can be done, i.e. the people who are supposed to be sending us the grain don't or are stopped halfway across the Atlantic. And that's the point. This has all happened before, isn't it? Well, true. But I come back to my earlier point. In this part of the world, we're so well suited for growing wheat and barley and sugar beet and potatoes and veg and all this sort of stuff that an island nation that is going to have to feed itself and has to protect itself from this kind of volatility in politics that we've seen in the last year or so 
there has to be a solution to it, although we have to get there because it cannot imagine that we would be in a position where we are you know, less than 50% self-sufficient and importing half our food from halfway around the world. But uh, it is a bit of an optimistic, <laughs> an optimistic well, view. Either way, Norwich Market will have plenty of produce, won't it? Well, yeah. You know. And maybe, yeah, and this is something we've seen a lot recently. It is one of the positives of the last few years is that smaller producers who have created a link between themselves and their consumer Absolutely. are doing really well and will continue to do. Right? Absolutely. If they're creating their own set of values and able to sell that directly to a consumer rather than into a commodity market <laughs> where you're rolling all this. But uh, maybe that supports the, the bottom end of the market, you know, the sort of smaller family farms while there are larger corporate commercial concerns farming at a larger level. I mean, it's uh, as ever, I mean, for the last, I don't know, it's been nine years or so, I think, since I've been covering agriculture and I've seen so many changes in that period of time. Looking ahead the same amount of time from there on, it's hard to imagine yeah, what no, the world looks yeah. like in another nine years particularly with the way the climate's changing, the way the weather's turning, unpredictable political flare-ups in all other parts of the world. It's impossible to predict. You can only trade one day at a time and what's in front of your nose. And in the end, you know, all of your best laid plans could be undermined by a number of very terrible things, couldn't they? But yeah, no, and without doubt, we're not meeting our climate change, you know, uh, targets. So we are in, a number of people don't believe that the earth is naturally warming for a period of time and so on. But Now, we've got some climate troubles, but I think the greatest godsend for Norfolk or for the UK is it's an island. It's a maritime climate. We will have rain. We will have perhaps too much sun, but we will produce a large amount of product in the key areas. And this is a, if not the key area. Yeah, it has to be, doesn't it? So there has to be a way to make it work. I think that's the basis for my optimism is that we've got the means and the people and the infrastructure in this part of the world to make it work if policy is driving that in a different direction i feel like there has to be a way that it resolves itself for that reason okay well that's a happy ending on that (laughs) one and uh, i'd just say and we have a really good agricultural press in our county so good on you chris and thanks for coming on the podcast cheers thanks very much thanks for listening make sure you subscribe to get updates on new episodes and when they are released and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We are at Dewing Grain. Call Dewing Grain on 01263 731 550 or email info at The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by East Coast Design Studio, a full-service creative agency specialising in websites, digital marketing and branding. Get in touch to inquire with their friendly team on info at eastcoastdesignstudio.co.uk.